Today we are in Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 through 7. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and, a, and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to make a vow than to make one and to not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Sarah. Oh. Baby's upset about Ecclesiastes this morning. <laughs> Koheleth is rough, man. He's an upsetting read. Welcome to Neighbors Church, dear family, this morning. Another beautiful Sunday morning. Let's uh, pray. My name's Dan. And I am one of the lead pastors as well. So we find our way through the book of Ecclesiastes this morning in chapter 5. Just continuing our journey, really laboring to build a community of resilience in the midst of cynicism and a community of rest in the midst of exhaustion. The two primary challenges for the late modern Western Christian, exhaustion and cynicism. So we're sitting at the feet for months at the chief cynic of the Old Testament, Koheleth was his Hebrew title. Would you take a deep breath with me into your bodies, and let's just be present now to God's word through the teaching as we have another breath into our body, sung songs, exhaling praise and glory and honor to our God, as we have smiled at one another, shaping each other, mirror neurons firing in our brains, creating smiles on other faces as we smile at one another. Now, Lord, we come and we gather here at your feet, the text being opened, and we breathe in your word. We breathe in life. Father, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. We were designed for love, made to love, created to be loved. Love is the foundation of the universe. It is the source and the epicenter of all things created and uncreated. Bring us into the dance of the Trinity this day as we sit in a teaching. And I do pray, myself having prayed all week now, that the gravity of you, our God, the weight, in the Hebrew, the, the kabad, the glory, would be palpable upon our souls as we listen to 
your words being taught and your thoughts being expounded through this ancient teacher who was off in so many ways and on in so many others. We trust you to speak to us and transform us in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. If you haven't read it, The Knowledge of the Holy is maybe one of the most important classics written in the last generation of teachers and writers. A.W. Tozer, 1978, published this book. And in it, he wrote, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion, and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous, that means like sign showing, the most prophetic sign, the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at a given time may say or do, but what he or she in their deep heart conceive God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Let me just repeat a couple lines there. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. And Tozer would say the most revealing thing about the church collective is the way we think about God, our ideas about God. And so contemporary ideas about God, particularly in diverse pluralistic societies like here in the United States, they are generally a hodgepodge of Christian morality mixed in with some Eastern meditation practices, a pinch of indulgent New Age mysticism, a hefty bit of self-care, and a smattering of neuroscience, or scientism as we like to call it, to scratch our itch for empirical and evidence-derived truth. Now, I'm broad-brushing, of course, with that paragraph describing the contemporary ideas of God. But let me ask you, earnestly consider this this morning. How do you, right now, think of God? If the most revealing thing about you is your idea of who God is, how do you think of God this morning? Maybe he or she or it is nothing more than an idea made up by people who need a crutch through life. Maybe just a collective delusion fabricated by power-hungry humans to control the masses. Maybe this morning you think of God as nothing more than a myth developed through centuries of evolutionary anthropological process, maybe something that your parents or possibly your grandparents believed, but a notion that you have pretty much been able to do away with. Maybe this morning for some of us, he or she or it is a deity, angry, ready to just smash humanity. Maybe he's just a cruel ogre, a manipulative puppet master, an absentee father. Or maybe for some of us, he or she or it, is a kind of present presence, 
conscious personal agent who's involved in comforting and caring and attending to our needs and meeting our desires. And if we are all honest here in this room, all of our personal ideas about God are a cocktail of these things, both conscious and unconscious, formed by our inward dispositions and shaped by the culture's influence on our thoughts. But knowing how we think about God, knowing our ideas about God is of greater importance for the contemporary Christian because traditional, historical, and spiritual worldviews are spinning out into a world of chaos around us, especially within the framework of Western society. So the way that you and I this morning imagine God, that influences the way that we're going to approach him, that influences the way that we're going to relate to him, and that influences the way that we see him either working or not working according to our interpretation of the world. The most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. And that brings us to Ecclesiastes this morning, where we reach a subtle turning point in Koheleth's teachings. His language begins to shift from indicatives to imperatives, from statements about things to commands about things to do. So essentially, this morning, we're starting a second semester with our jaded philosophy professor. (laughs) We're moving from his reflections on life to ethics. How do we live this life? And at the root of Koheleth's ethics and his commands for his students are ideas, his ideas about God. Now, as we've said in our journey through the book of Ecclesiastes, there are many similarities between San Diegans and this ancient philosopher's thoughts about God. But he is still ancient. Koheleth is located thousands of years before us with multitudes of cultures and languages between us. And so it's a given that some of his ideas about God are going to be utterly foreign to you and I. Many people of late Western modernity were going to find some of his alien concepts somewhat jarring, if not downright offensive. But this morning, if you will give Koheleth his due, respect his thoughts, try to get into his head. What he does is he spans the distance between us and he speaks to the modern Christian in fresh and in new ways. Koheleth's unfamiliar ideas about God actually serve to inform and form more fully our contemporary incomplete and misinformed ideas of who God is. And so Koheleth's first lesson attempts to answer the question, how do we relate to God? How do we approach him? How do we communicate with him? Because each of us have an idea this morning how we currently approach our God and relate to him. A primary theme woven through Koheleth's instructions is this gravity of who God is. Koheleth emphasizes God's holy otherness, his distance from humanity. Thus, Koheleth requires a sober self-awareness and a careful intentionality in our interactions with him. Now, we moderns, we struggle with the idea of God's otherness, his transcendence. We struggle with God's holiness because these concepts, these ideas about God, they do not align with our current social sensibilities and contemporary definitions of kindness and compassion, empathy and love. What we want is we want a God who acts just like we act. 
We want a God who loves just like we would love and defines love as we would define love. And we want a God who will do justice as we define justice as long as that justice isn't pointed at us. (laughs) The problem is our definitions of kindness and compassion and empathy and love, they are deformed, malformed, and broken by sin. So what we do is we project our broken and limited ideas about kindness and love and compassion and empathy onto God, expecting him to think and act like we would, but then he doesn't and he won't. The psalmist, the voice coming through his prophetic word to the people of God, you thought I was exactly like you, but now I arraign you and set my accusations before you. That's weighty. God is infinitely holy and beyond us. And this for Koheleth was the foundations of his relationship with this God. This was the foundational idea on the nature of God for Koheleth, that he is holy other, that he is beyond, that he is above, that he is at distance from us and different from us. And so Koheleth's voice sits in stark contrast to the contemporary voices that are speaking to us today. Why? Because Koheleth considered wise living as better than foolish living when relating to this God. And for Koheleth, wisdom wasn't just some gray beard and rational thought. Wisdom was what he called the fear of the Lord. And I don't want to diminish what that means. For Koheleth, being scared of God was the beginning of wisdom. That sounds so offensive to us as modern contemporary Christians, to be scared of God. It's Jesus with his long flowing wind and bright blue, long flowing hair in the wind and bright blue eyes and a little lamb tucked under his, under his, whatever, under his arm, you know? Who could ever be scared of Jonathan Rumi playing Jesus? But for Koheleth, this trembling, a fear of God, this is a concept that our culture has effectively driven from the collective imagination, including us, beloved Christian community. So wisdom for Koheleth, wisdom feared this otherness. It revered and trembled at this holiness of God. It was palpable in the mind of Koheleth. In fear and respect, Koheleth would say, wisdom then acts maturely. Wisdom operates self-introspectively and intentionally, and wisdom operates resolutely in the presence of God. This is practically the opposite of how you and I currently are taught to live and to relate to each other and even to relate to God in this cultural moment. Think with me. We live in a time where emotional impulsivity equals authenticity. (laughs) For some, admonitions towards self-regulation are deemed toxic. And in some sectors, the call to behavioral restraint is even considered oppressive. Now, depending on which echo chamber the algorithms keep us scrolling in on our phones, some sectors would say any call to check our speech, well, that's just silencing our voices. While other kinds of speech must be silenced by mob censorship, as we're seeing across campuses in the United States currently. 
Most of us sitting in this room are what we would call the silent majority. We don't fall into those extremes. We don't believe those things. We don't behave in those extreme polarities. But the noisiest minority sentiment screams as if everyone everywhere believes these things and believes and behaves these ways. And that makes ours an age of brutality and disrespect. We mistrust at best and at worst despise any notion of authority. And to be fair, we mistrust and despise authority justifiably. Religious, political, and institutional authority has established a long track record of scandals and lies and manipulations of power. Thus, our default assumption on authority is to deem it dangerous and abusive. And this default position has saturated our society in slander, in disregard for our elders, in disdain for authority, and in a general abandonment of social decorum. So then when Koheleth comes on the scene here on a Sunday morning in sunny San Diego and says, fear God, the idea of fearing an all-powerful being who is also full of integrity and kindness, it just sounds ludicrous in our minds. We have no concept for such a thing. But Koheleth, regardless, he spans the difference of thousands of years and multiple cultures and languages coming from a culture almost opposite to ours. He spans the gap, and he says things like this. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Exercise self-control. Be restrained. Be careful. Go in the fear of God. Go near to listen, not with just a flow of words. Do not be quick with your mouth. Let your words be few. And when you go before God, what he tells you to do and what you tell God you will do, do fulfill your vow. Self-regulate, be aware, exercise control, say little, and what you say you'll do, do it without compromise. And so Koheleth's God was a far cry from the ambiguous God of contemporary culture that bows to us more than we bow to him. Koheleth's God was a far cry from the contemporary ambiguous God who would never tell us to stop, don't do that, or no. What Koheleth does is he restores somewhat forcefully this morning and without apology, the creator-creature dynamic in our relating to God. God created us and God does not exist to serve us, friends. That, for some of us, maybe unconsciously, I know for myself, is always a radical reorientation in the way that I pray. God created me and God does not exist to serve me. And so Koheleth says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know what they do wrong. That word listen there in verse 1, it's the same Hebrew word used throughout the Old Testament for obey. Listen and obey are synonymous in the Old Testament language. For Koheleth, the way to approach God was first and foremost with the intent to listen and to obey. We, as moderns, more often than not, we approach God primarily out of our felt needs basis. I need mental, emotional, relational help. I need mental, relational health. I need financial or social provision and protection. And friends, those are very, very good and important things. And we should approach God and ask him for all of those things because our loving and good God wants to provide those things for us. But all of those things come only through Radical obedience to God. The great myth of modern Christianity 
is that we tell God what to give us with no intent of obeying what God tells us to do to gain those things. Goheleth's idea starts with total, and I mean every bit of ourselves, total obedience as the only hope for lasting and true healing in every arena of life. His idea of God reorients our position before God as creatures subservient to our creator. And as Koheleth works through his thoughts, he brings up three means by which we approach God and relate to God. Sacrifice, prayer, and vows. Sacrifice, prayer, and vows. These three practices, sacrificing, praying, and vowing, These are the default ways that human beings have interacted with God, not only in ancient Judaism, but across the religious landscape throughout all of history. Now think with me. We modern secular societies, we have a general understanding of prayer. You ask any average Joe on the street, what is prayer? They're going to say, oh, prayer is something like talking to God or the universe or the great intelligence or be whatever it may be. When it comes to vows here in modern societies like the United States, we sort of have a vestige of vowing and covenanting left in our society. It's primarily in wedding ceremonies and when giving testimony in a court of law. Late Western modernity has pretty much done away with the idea of relating to God through the offering of a sacrifice. We relegate sacrifice to pagan societies that existed deep in our past, It's kind of something that we see in the movies, nothing more than a fictional artifact that we now use for our entertainment. Most of us find the notion of sacrificial offering uncomfortable and squeamish at best and downright archaic and barbaric at worst. Now, whether we recognize it or not, Koheleth reminds us that modern people in the name of progress and enlightenment have discounted one of the fundamental building blocks to God, his utter holiness and sacrifice of the means of coming into that holy presence. Imagine God's holiness, just briefly, God's holiness. Imagine the sun, this burning ball of fiery gas. If we were able to approach the sun, you would need the proper gear to be able to get close to the presence of the sun. Of course, that doesn't exist scientifically. I just want you to stick with me on this. If we were to approach the sun, Without the right covering, the right protective gear, the sun, because of what it is, not because the sun is raging, not because the sun is so angry that you've approached it, because the sun is a burning ball of fiery gas. It would automatically consume you without the right covering. But let's just, for the sake of analogy this morning, say science had developed the right covering. You could travel and get close to this burning, hot ball of flaming gas and not be harmed. God's holiness, and I'm trying to put human words to a concept that until he just wrecks you deep in your being, you won't understand. Until you feel the fire of his holiness deep in your heart, these are just going to be words bouncing off of a stone within your chest. God, give us fleshy hearts. God, may we hear. God's holiness, not out of anger, but because he is just, because he is, what he is, is righteous and perfection. God's holiness consumes injustice and injustice and impurity and rebellious things. It is what God's holiness does. 
And so the consequences of sin are the consuming of what we understand to be imperfect, unclean life. The wages of sin are death, St. Paul would tell us. And the sacrificial system, especially within ancient Judaism, has always had at its center the death, the consuming of another in the place of the one who deserved it. And that sacrifice covers the soul from being consumed by the holiness of God so that he or she could come into God's presence. Almost a year, of you, a year ago, for those of you who have been traveling with us in our church plant, we did an entire series on sin and what theologians call atonement theory. I loved that series. Super nerdy, super fun to teach. And we devoted an hour-long teaching to understanding sacrifice. You can check it out. Atonement and Sacrifice, March 21st, almost exactly a year ago, 2022, on the Neighbors Church podcast. And so, while our contemporary society, and for the most part, you and I, in our day-in, day-out life, we have no category for sacrificial ideas about relating to God, this is the roots of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when we think about God's love and how we relate to him and how he loves us, God actually defines and displays love for us, not through cuddly feelings in our hearts or not by fulfilling our dreams per se. God defines and displays his love through the sacrificial offering of Jesus in our place. Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is love. We're going to spend an entire summer in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John exploring this. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, that we would not be consumed in his purity and holiness. Love is defined by the sacrifice of Jesus. And this is the foundation of our relationship to God, This is what motivates repentance, turning from impurity and uncleanness, stepping into the covering that is the atoning sacrifice of Jesus and moving out in radical selfless obedience. Not foolish sacrifices of give me what I want and I want to do what I want and you bow to me, but I will do whatever you say because you have done everything necessary for me to come back into your presence. St. Paul said in light of the incredible sacrifice of Jesus that our proper act of worship, the only place of proper worship was in a life laid down in radical obedience, a life that would say, I am now going to go out in fear and trembling, working out my salvation before God, living against the foolish chaos forces of a world that has no idea who God is. I had a friend this morning tell me, man, your church can sing. This church sings. That's just, that's just, a, that's just a glimpse into the reaction to the gospel. People saying, I don't care if I'm off pitch, on the floor, snot coming out of my nose, bawling my eyes out, I'm going to sing and respond with my life. Because I urge you, Paul would say, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. There it is again, sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world that has no idea who God is, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind with full and right and fully informed ideas of who God is. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God, I don't know what you want me to do. Do you want to obey? He'll tell you what to do. That's how this all works. But only if everything's laid down. Identity, dreams, hopes, dispositions, depressions, blessings, joys, confusions, clarities, 
Everything is his because he gave everything for us. And so we offer by faith the sacrifice of Jesus in our place and we receive now his love and forgiveness moment by moment and we turn then in repentance and offer him everything as living sacrifices. Let's pause for just a moment here. I can hear... I can hear the cry of the church kid right now. Dan, this is tough for me. I have been deconstructing the legalisms and the God is an angry tyrant ideas from my childhood. And I showed up at neighbors and you guys are breathing and it's silence and solitude. It's so soft and comforting. And now you're up there talking about holiness. And this is just, this, 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 this is troubling. This is bothering me. And I, I understand that. I really do. I, I understand. Here's the invitation from the Holy Spirit. Rather than deconstructing, the Holy Spirit is inviting you to reconstruct your idea of God with broader, more full, more complete categories and ideas about who he actually is. Friends, if at the end of my life I could get you to understand this one thing, I will have done my job. The power of Christian theology and our ideas about God, the power of our ideas about God, are not found in these reduced either-or understandings of who he is, but these both-and understandings of who he is. He is not either wrathful or merciful. He is both-and simultaneously and equally. He is not either compassionate and just. He is both-and simultaneously and equally. He's not either holy or love. He is both holy and love. It was John the Revelator in an apocalyptic vision there in the book of Revelation. He saw this both-and God. Revelation 5. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And you would think the next line would be John looking up and seeing Aslan, the raging, roaring lion. But instead, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain. Behold, the lion triumphant and the, sl the lamb slain. This was John's vision. This is the church's vision. Both and roaring, terrifying, unapproachable, unsafe, but good lion. Lamb, soft, gentle, kind, comforting, forgiving, slaughtered. No less than this both and thinking forms our ideas of who God is and how we relate to him. And friends, when you and I fall into either or thinking, either lamb or either lion, we lose God and ultimately in that we lose ourselves. Because it is this both and lion-lamb idea of God that actually informs a maturing prayer life and worship life before him. Prayer, the second means of Koheleth's relating to God and his instructions therein. Ecclesiastes 5, 2-3. Don't be quick with your mouth. Don't be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. My favorite proverb, Proverbs 28, 17, even a fool is considered wise when he keeps his mouth shut. I can't tell you how many times I've been just sitting there pondering deeply in a meeting, so quiet, stern look on my face. All I'm thinking about is a burrito or if the waves are in. And people are like, Dan, you're so wise. No, I'm just hungry, just quiet, not saying anything. Koheleth reminds us of this facet of God that I think we need to reinvigorate in our daily worship practices. He is above you. He is above you. He's beyond you, and he is much, much, much bigger than you, and he is way outside of you. And so in a very healthy and beneficial way, friends, 
We moderns, we emphasize the nearness of God, that he is eminent is the theological language. That idea is rooted in Christianity. The incarnation brought about the idea of the eminence of God, that God would clothe himself in human flesh, enter our lives and live as one of us, tempted as we are, war-torn and wounded as we are, but without sin, the author of Hebrews tells us. The closeness of God, it is a comfort and a delight for all people learning how to pray. We pray to Jesus as our big brother, as our friend, as our confidant, as our counselor, as our guide. We pour out our words and our tears upon him in faith, and he delights to hear every bit of blubbering and crying and praying that we can produce. It's a beautiful thing that we have been trained to approach God as children, to cry out, to pour out, unrestrained before him. I myself have told numerous people, share your deepest stuff in whatever way comes out without restraint before God because he already knows that you're cussing in your prayers. He gets it. He understands. He's not shocked by it. But our prayers are both and. He is both lion and lamb. Words and silence. Quiet. Be quiet. There is a maturity in prayer that Koheleth calls us to. Children have to mature, church. Children, like our society, are marked by emotional impulsivity, and they just call it authenticity. I authentically want to throw a tantrum right now. Lack of self-control, behavioral chaos, these are the marks of what we call children. But as children mature, they learn how to self-regulate and exercise control, and they learn to respect and honor loving authorities in their lives. Alexis and I, as parents, always said that this stage, until they get about this tall, like right above your hip, that's just enforcing the fact that we are authority and that we are trustworthy and that we love them. So for us in prayer, as Koheleth reinforms our ideas about God, he emphasizes the transcendence of God, his distance, that he is in heaven and that we are on earth, therefore we limit our words. This distance between heaven and earth, it's not a geographical thing that Koheleth is trying to get us to grasp. It's a theological thing. God is above everything. He is indeed outside of all things. He's outside of time, outside of creation, outside of our experience. But he sees it and he understands it all from a very different perspective. And so Koheleth says, as we mature in prayer, use fewer words. Recognize and listen. This is his command. Though we think we know what God should or shouldn't do, we don't. And so a quiet and silent form of prayer attunes our hearts to his wisdom. Should we use words? Absolutely. I think I've already said this. We use all of our words to confess, to request, cry out, worship, praise. But we should equally be spending as much time in deep reverential quiet, waiting, listening, and learning to call what the mystics called God's first language, silence. We are, as we've said here forever now, contemplative charismatics. Charismatically crying out with an overflow of words. Contemplatively listening. We are charismatic contemplatives and contemplative charismatics, both and. Now, finally, these sacrificial offerings of careful and intentional prayer, they are made concrete by our commitments, by our vows. And this is what Koheleth reminds us. When we say that we've heard God say something and we're going to do it, and we say we're going to do it, either in heart or vocalized, God takes that statement very, very 
very, 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 I don't know how many varies I could add to this, very seriously. When you make a vow to God, don't delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Don't let your mouth lead you into sin and don't protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. I'm sorry. I didn't know what I was saying. I didn't know what I was doing. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? That's a little bit unsettling in the modern mind. It definitely unsettled me meditating on this for the last 40 hours. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, fear God. And if you come across a text where you find yourself squirming under it a little bit, that's not because you're being triggered. That is the Holy Spirit literally saying, listen. Shh. If you're scared, listen. He has something to tell you, and he wants you to do it. For the ancient Near Easterner, unlike us modern Westerners, Your words constructed your very identity. Your words, they created the social fabric of the community, and your community was your identity. It was a collectivistic, honor-shame culture. Committing to fulfilling one's vows in Koheleth's world was a way that a human either literally, physically, in some cases, lived or died. If you broke a vow in this culture, just yesterday I was in Leviticus where they take this kid out who breaks a vow against God and they stone him to death. Just category-altering, cuddly Jesus out the window, terrifying stuff. So for Koheleth, what you said mattered. What you committed to, you did, lest you lose face in the eyes of your community. That was the equivalent of being cast out and exiled from your very sense of self. And this level of covenantal commitment has never changed in the social fabric of relationship between this holy God and unholy humans. Why? Why has it not changed? Even though in the West we are very individualistic and vows are sort of, if I feel like it, maybe I'll commit to it, but if it compromises my ability to do what I want, even in, that, even in the face of that culture, just because everybody's doing it, as I've said to my kids so many times, just because everybody's doing it does not mean that it's changed the fact of how God relates to us. God relates to us in this covenantal, vowing way because we're image bearers. And that means, in a very real sense, that we do daily in microcosm what God does in macrocosm as we partner with him. Let me explain it this way. God created the world by his words. He spoke, and there was light, and there was life. Then God covenanted. There's six of them throughout the Old Testament and then the new covenant in Jesus, but God covenants with his words. And in those covenants and promises with his words, he vows to be with his world, to tend to it, to heal it, to save it from from itself. So God's vow to us is our creation and it is our salvation. His commitments and his words are our means of existence and relationship with him. But because we are image bearers, when we partner with him or don't partner with him, regardless, as image bearers, Our words create things. They create things. Our words matter because they do things in this world. And because God is a covenant-keeping God, God actually made the social fabric of humanity to operate through promise-keeping, trust, and covenant fulfillment. Do you guys want to know why we're not going to die when we get out on the California freeways today? It's because we trust everybody is going to, in this unspoken covenant, obey the traffic laws. And when they don't, what happens when when vows aren't fulfilled? 
Social fabric is created by our vowing, commitment, and trust-keeping one with another. When we back out on our commitments, when we use words and then we say, oh, that was a mistake, the covenantal framework of relational trust in which God created humanity to thrive, it's deformed and it's diminished. Let me say it very simply. When we don't do what we say we're going to do, when we break our vows, we are undoing what our words have made. When we don't fulfill our commitments and our vows to each other and to God, we decreate. We decreate. I don't want this to be condemning in any way because I am more than guilty of this. But the text five minutes before that this has come up and I can't do it is a moment of decreation. Yes, there are things that come up. Yes, there are points and places and pain and issues and problems and schedules that get convoluted. But I think Koheleth calls us to a level of thinking about each other, particularly in the local church, at a level of commitment that maybe we haven't embraced yet. Because it's in the framework of covenant that love actually exists. Love cannot exist without commitment and covenant, friends. It just can't. And so we have to take seriously. Do I think that we should take you out and stone you if you're the one that texts five minutes before that you're not going to be there? Yes, I do. No. I am obviously way off notes at this point, so let's just get back onto the text here. There's a weighty idea here of vowing covenant keeping, and it's the crux of our discipleship, you guys. This is what you and I as Christians are going to spend our whole lives learning to do in ever greater degree as apprentices of Jesus. Jesus is the only one who perfectly fulfilled his vows all the way to the end, never, never faltering. And his vows took him all the way to the cross where he was decreated for us because of our broken vows. Because of our diminishment of God's holiness and otherness, he had to absorb that into himself. Discipleship, apprenticeship unto Jesus, that's our effort in the part of this. In the spirit now, we walk the long, slow pathway towards Jesus and towards learning to vow and commit and live like Jesus, even at cost to ourselves, primarily at cost to ourselves, because that is the very definition of love. But as we walk our journey of vowing and committing and praying and sacrificing not as fools, of course we make mistakes. Of course we fail. Of course we falter. And so then Jesus comes along and he says, I hold up the sacrifice. I am the sacrifice in your place. I give to you this cup of the new covenant. I give to you my body, this broken bread. And it's my promised word to you to always be with you, to never forsake you, to always forgive you, to always accept you, to always keep moving you forward, to always be seeking your healing that we might then, out of that place of love, recommit, recovenant to God and to each other, moment by moment, moving forward, becoming more and more like Jesus and doing what Jesus did in this world because our words matter. What we say matters. So as we come to communion this morning, wrapping it up, the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Who is he to you this morning? Right now, like, what are your ideas about God? Where has there been some squirming under this? Where has there been some, hmm, that's a curious, I've never thought of this that way. Where are your ideas being completed? Where are they being formed? Where have you fallen into either or? God is either this or either that instead of the both and. And how this morning do you relate to him? How do you approach him? How do you communicate with him? Koheleth and the cup and the table of Jesus Christ, they remind us this morning that we are loved by this sacrificial lamb. 
And so we bow before this lion in radical, committed, sacrificial obedience. We pray with our words and we sit silently, just listening for his will. We vow and we obey until his kingdom comes on earth as it is in heaven. Would you please stand with me and let's read together. Our liturgy, together, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Father, as we come to communion this morning, I ask that there would be both a lightness, a buoyancy in your people, and a weightiness, a gravity in your people, that we would be a both-and people, bowing to the majesty of the lion, resting in the sacrifice of the lamb, rejoicing, repenting, obeying, Move us forward in life, Father. And Lord, where we have heard you clearly, you've asked us to stop, don't do that, and you've said no. Unlike children who continue to resist throwing temper tantrums, may we just settle like adults, act maturely, introspectively, and with wisdom in the fear of the Lord, say, I vow, today I vow. I vow to just obey you. I covenant again to walk with you and to trust you. Thank you that your covenant keeps me, holds me, heals me, saves me until that day when all of the universe will walk in perfect covenant union with you. Perfect forever. No more sacrifice needed. Just love in Jesus' name.